It's a beautiful day and a fine time for healing. Podcast host Randy Fine, a narcissistic abuse expert and the author of the groundbreaking book, Close Encounters of the Worst Kind, and the captivating memoir, Cliff Edge Road, invites you into her sanctuary, a place where your physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being are all that matter. So put your feet up, relax, and enjoy today's show. And now, here's Randy. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in to listen to A Fine Time for Healing. I am your show host, Randy Fine. You know, I love to bring you new things. Um, my idea, my, you know, my philosophy is that I like to present a lot of different things to you to see uh, what resonates with you because everything, everybody is different and what resonates with one person doesn't resonate with the other. So that's why I, I'm really, really particular with what I bring onto my show <clears throat> because I don't want to keep repeating the same things over and over. I want to bring you new things. And today is one of those such things. So um, there is a place beyond even simple meditation, a place where you become aware of your awareness, where you become your awareness, where you are immersed in it, immersed in it, where you rest in it, where you experience the totality of space, freedom, and oneness with infinity, where your ego, your I-ness, your labels of your addictions just disappear. You transcend all else to be the awareness. This is your mind in its natural state. Today's special guest, Sivan Hassett and Rachel, maintain that once you've stepped over the threshold to experience this awakened state, it's easier and easier to attain it. And there is no going back. Being bogged down in the conceptual mind pales in comparison and holds no attraction. In his book, Entering the Mind, a poetic, illuminating, and deep-diving volume of intense higher consciousness, Sivan Hassett shows you how to access it and why you must. If your purpose is to seek more than what the conceptual mind offers, the transactional, the material, the emotional, a writer, editor, and publisher of Riot Material Magazine, Sivan Hassett is a decades-long practitioner of Zhen, an ancient wisdom practice which points the individual inward towards the recognition of their own mind, the path to awakening. He and his wife, Rachel Reed Wilkie, who is also a skilled practitioner, are committed to bringing Zhen to the wider world as a way to open the wellspring of love, joy, compassion, ease, and peace for all humankind. Good morning, Chris and Rachel. Welcome. Good morning, Randy. Good morning, Randy. Thank you for having us on your show today. You are so welcome. It's a pleasure to have you from the Mojave Desert. Um, <laughs> okay. So I've never heard of Zogjen before. I received uh, the information <clears throat> from your um, promotional person. So I'd like to start out by you explaining what this is and how you became involved in it. Well, Dzogchen is an ancient and even timeless wisdom practice that 
the Tibetans for centuries had perfected and passed down from basically ear to ear, from master to student. And this went on up until the Chinese invaded Tibet in the mid-50s. And they, it, that was kind of a benefit to the rest of the world while it was a tragedy to, for Tibet um, because uh, all these great masters were dispersed throughout the world. And they recognized then that Dzogchen must now be become uh, a more popularized uh, instruction that takes you inward into looking at your own mind in its natural state. And this state we're, we're fairly familiar with. We, we've been seeing it our, our entire lives. But it's that mind within the mind that does absolutely nothing or seemingly nothing. It just, it's just it's there in the background and you kind of, you take note of it when you're drifting off to sleep or when you're, you're like running a marathon and you're just in the zone. And so what the Chen teachings teach you is how to recognize it. And this is critical. If you don't recognize it, then it just keep slipping past this. But once you recognize it, then the, the teachings tell us to go in there and just sit down and observe it. And while you're observing it, the wisdom of yourself begins to arise within and it begins to inform who you are. And it's just a beautiful practice. It sounds beautiful. And so how did you and Rachel become attracted to this beautiful practice? Um, well, I was introduced to Zochen by Chris. So um, maybe, Chris, you explain how you first came about it many decades ago now. Yeah. Well, I think... For many of us, that call to that higher self is always it's always present in the back of our minds. We're always seeking something, uh, a way to elevate. And for me as well, and I just uh, was, you know, I was just a bit confused by the world, coming into this world as a young boy and trying to find answers of what, what this was about, why am I here? And eventually I stumbled on Buddhism, which led me to Dzogchen. Dzogchen is not necessarily a religion, and nor is it really Buddhism, though it is the peak of the Buddhist tradition, um, because it's, it's dealing beyond all of, the, all of, this, all of those uh, dualistic ideas of spirituality. And it just, I, I just loved the ideas that were coming through in Dzogchen. So I just started studying and, and, and buying books and then seeking out the teachers. And there are a lot of great teachers out there today. And uh, there were a lot of teachers when I started practicing. So I started receiving the teachings, and that was it. I was hooked. <laughs> Why do you think that um, it's not so well-known? Well, they don't really promote themselves. I mean, these, these it, people find it somehow. They, and, and it actually is becoming more and more well-known. I mean, it's taken about 50 years for it to really take root in the West because, it, you know, the Westerners like something to grab onto. You know, they, they like lineage. They, or they like, uh, you know, direct answers that point us outside of ourselves. Whereas Dzogchen mm-hmm. says, no, look inside because that's where every, all your answers are inside. Yes, and I think that um, it was um, kept secret, for want of a better word, but it was kept secret for many thousands of years because I believe that the, the Tibetans, the monks, they 
they believe that it took rigorous training to be able to even prepare to receive those teachings. And so, as um, Chris mentioned, um, masters would share their um, secret teachings with their students, but back in the day, they were only allowed to give one teaching to one student in their lifetime. And so for many, many generations, um, this uh, Dzogchen teachings, they were, they were very, very um, selective in the way that they would distribute those teachings through their uh, community, and of course exclusively from master to student. Um, whereas um, there was um, a great master who had a vision into the future and he foresaw the invasion of Tibet by the Chinese and he foresaw the fact that their community would be dispersed around the world and he actually told, he began to um, guide the masters into a newer world where Dzogchen could and should then be passed down to other communities including the Western society. Oh, that's so interesting. So, in um, in the in your book, um, entering the mind, you talk about the mind as it is referred to in Dzogchen teachings. So, what is the mind as as referred to in these teachings? What do they mean by the mind? Well, that's a great question because um, we tend to um, confuse ourselves a little bit with the word mind and that label which is put to this general area which is sort of in our head area. And some people believe that the mind is the brain and some people believe that the, that the mind is something deeper than that. And um, in how the Tibetans use the word mind really speaks to the totality of that mind which we experience. And within that mind, there is not only the conceptual mind, which is our habitual mind, it's the mind that we think with, it's the mind that continues to analyze and think and um, make reflections on the observations that we see. So we do definitely have a mind which is connected to our five senses. It triggers our um, emotional um, network. It triggers um, how we respond to sight and smell and sound, etc. But there is also another side to that mind, and that is what the Tibetans refer to as the non-conceptual mind. And this is the non-conceptual mind beyond all that, which is our natural state of mind. And this is really the space within our mind which is completely and utterly at one with consciousness. And the Tibetans use this word mind because they don't see the thinking mind and the spacious mind as being two different minds. They are all born of the non-conceptual mind. And so um, Chris and I often refer to the mind as in the thinking mind with a little m and then the mind as the conscious mind with a big m. <laughs> hmm, okay. So the only experience that I've ever had with my mind being completely blank was through transcendental meditation. Um, And at a time where, um, you know, it just, it just blanks out. There's nothing else there but space. And is this kind of what we're talking about when we talk about the 
you know, the mind in its natural state? Or is this something different? It's, it is the exact same thing. Transcendental meditation is great. And I speak to that in the book as transcendental meditation takes you exactly to this mind that we're speaking to. And when you say it's empty, this is true, but it's also aware. And when you recognize it, you recognize the awareness and the emptiness. And it's, this is where Dzogchen picks up from transcendental meditation because now Dzogchen says, pay attention to the awareness aspect of the emptiness. And transcendental meditation is great because it, it shows everybody how to get there or what it looks like. And Dzogchen teaches you how to remain there and how to develop uh-huh. skill in remaining there. Okay, thank yes, you. And, and that's wonderful, Randy. Both Chris and I have also trained in Transcendental Meditation, and so we've both um, experienced the benefits of Transcendental Meditation and how it directly gets you there to this point. And, um, and so working the two in tangent is, is an extremely um, beautiful practice. You know, it sounds really beautiful. You talk about in your book the two categories to the so-called shadow in the mind. What is that? What What is the shadow in the mind, and what are the two categories? Hmm. I don't remember writing about that in the book, the shadow <laughs> in the mind. <laughs> okay, well, let's, let's must move forward. The book. I, well, I did, but it's okay. Okay. Um, um, so, I mean, I can only, I can only, I, I, I honestly can't remember what the shadows are. Do you remember okay. that? I don't remember either. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I, I pulled maybe, it right maybe, out of yeah. the text. That's okay. No worries. I'm, I apologize for that. That's a, that's a big gaping mind blank in my <laughs> Okay, no problem. It's no problem at all. We're, we'll move forward. Yeah. I have lots to ask you. <laughs> Okay. Good. Um, so why do you say that the mind uh, moves further away from the systems of the body as they are beginning to fail? So you're talking about like pesticides and things like that, that are in the things that we ingest in our bodies. And you say that the mind backs further away from the systems in the body um, when this happens. Um, do you remember writing that? <laughs> Yeah, I think I think I know what you refer to with the shadow as well, because that was kind of more of a metaphor um, oh, relating okay. to exactly what you're speaking to here, um, okay. where, um, well, when the, the body, when we ingest pesticides, the problem with trying to meditate in the Western world is usually most people's bodies are really, um, they're, it, they're filled with toxins because so, so much of what we eat has pesticides in it or it's been produced in such a way where the body is having a difficult time assimilating it. And this makes the mind a bit foggy, fuzzy, muddy. And to try to meditate and recognize the non-conceptual state is very, very difficult. So in the book I speak to, um, we got to clean up our, our, our diet first. You know, we got to start eating more organic foods or, or foods right off the farm that's not using pesticides. And this is going to allow the mind to clear up. And this is where the shadows begin to clear away uh, within, you know, where we can't see the non-conceptual mind. So, uh, and literally when we're eating pesticides, those are meant to kill both the plants and the insects in the field. It also kills the microbiome of the soil. 
And then when we ingest it, it kills the microbiome of our body. And this begins the, the long-term, slow-moving failure of the body on the whole, where we, we move towards first, you know, Parkinson's disease or Alzheimer's disease. We move towards all kinds of ailments until we ultimately die at a young, much younger age than we should have. So you say that the mind sort of moves further away from the body um, as it begins to fail. And what do you mean by that? <clears throat> well, um, it's really the situation that um, the body is the home of consciousness. So the, the body grounds our mind and grounds our consciousness. And so when our body is... Um, has toxins in it and it has um, a state of elevated um, contamination and pollution within it, then the mind will retreat to the furthest corner of our body to almost protect itself, almost to, um, to still be the remaining living essence of our being and so the more that we are riddled with pollutions and contamination, the further away in effect our mind and our consciousness will be. Whereas when we clean up, our body is then this beautiful, clean vessel that can hold and give home to our consciousness. And that will allow us in this human form to have a more direct, closer contact to our mind and therefore mind practices and therefore um, connect with our consciousness. Okay, that makes sense. There, um, in the book, you talk a lot about the importance of the present in the practice. And um, you talk about the fourth time. So how important is the present? And when you speak of the present in this practice, what exactly are you meaning? Well, to, the present is, is, is essential to, to remain in the present, to practice presence is critical to even getting to this place in meditation uh, where we speak to the fourth time. And the fourth time is actually when you move even beyond the present. And it's not a movement. It's just a recognition that ultimately there is no present either, that this, again, is another construct of the time and space uh, sentient consciousness. But to get into this fourth time, which is the deeper state of meditation, you have to be present. So presence is critical to allow yourself to continually be drift away on your thoughts means you're moving into the past or into the future. And then so you recognize that and you bring yourself back into the present and you, you continue to settle into that present moment. And then from that settling, you, you begin to expand outward into the, what's called the fourth time, which is known as a, a time that it's beyond time, essentially. And this is where the non-conceptual mind resides. Mm -hmm. There's um, a beautiful um, phrase um, in a book that I read by one of the great living Tibetan masters, Sonia Rinpoche. And um, um, he says in this chapter, of course, after, um, after many, many um, teachings on how to bring presence into your everyday moment, everyday activities, um, he says, bring 
and of course in your meditation, bring everything into the present. Bring everything. Bring your thoughts into the present. Bring your body into the present. Bring your mind into the present. And then let go of the present. And it was Hmm. so beautiful when I read this. A light bulb went off in my head and I just got it. And I thought, wow, that is so profound because the present is also a construct of our minds. And so once you let that go, at that point, as Chris says, you are then residing in the fourth time. Hmm. And why did they call it the fourth time? Do you know? Well, because you have the three times of past, present, and future. Ah, so the fourth, okay. the fourth time is that, yeah. Got it. I understand. That makes sense. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. Um, now, is this a state of mind that we can exist in, or is this a state of mind that we want to be able to tap into um, in order to connect ourselves to um, this non-conceptual mind? Because is this something we can live in on a daily basis, this non-conceptual mind? Yes. Yes. So it's it's something that we have within us. So the non-conceptual mind is something that we all have, but it's clouded by the conceptual mind. And so with meditation practice, and um, with mindfulness practices, what we are seeking to do is to calm down the conceptual mind to the point where the non-conceptual mind then reveals itself to us. So it's something that we have within all of us. Um, We're born with this innate nature, um, but we don't see it and we don't relate to it and we don't connect with it on a daily basis because we haven't been trained in how to um, release it. Um, So this is something that does take training. And um, as you know, as a fellow practitioner of meditation, um, it takes time. It takes time and it, you know, little bits every day is what can train us into um, calming the conceptual mind so that this greater mind can be revealed to us. And um, it's to to remain in it all the time is the goal, and this is what's what's known as awakening. And so you know people people are traveling all over the world to find awakening to get to go to India to spend a year in India because they want to enlighten. And in reality, the traveling that needs to be done is internally, and it does take practice, and it's very difficult to remain even for a couple minutes in this non-dual state because the conceptual mind is, is, is fierce. It, 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 it's always popping back in. It's always pulling us out of the present moment. But with training, it's like learning yoga. It's like learning how to cook or ride a bike. It really does take practice. And with practice, you, get, you spend more and more time there. And as you spend more and more time there, you watch your, your, the conditions of the daily world kind of disappear. Anxiety disappears and depression disappears. And with that, you become even more present and more in the moment. And so it becomes a cycle that so hopefully by within a few years or within a few decades, you can really reside in this non-conceptual state for most of the day. Mm-hmm. And, and the great Tibetan masters, they have trained, of course, um, not only in this lifetime, but also previous lifetimes. And they 
when they are fully enlightened, they are literally in this state 24-7. So they are in this state in their waking life, in their dream state, um, and from every single second that they are in this human form, they are actually fully enlightened into this, um, into the nature of their own mind. The Dalai Lama, for instance, is one of those guys, and he you, could, you would never know that he's fully enlightened, but he totally is. I mean, there's, everybody who knows him says he, he's, he's absolutely mm-hmm. one of these awakened individuals. And he's a practitioner of Dzogchen. Yeah. Yes. Oh, really? Hmm. Yes. And is it possible to integrate yourself into this, you know, very physical, material world, this world of duality? Um with this kind of mindset can we integrate yes. ourselves into it yes totally yes totally. absolutely and that is also the goal because um of course we have to start small with baby steps and you know and that could be our uh, morning meditation and our afternoon meditation so we might just be really training ourselves for um you know short period each day but the the goal is to bring that mindfulness and bring that awareness into every single daily activity and every single relationship every single interaction and and of course the the um, the obstacles and challenges that this three-dimensional realm brings to us each day that's our chance to practice and that's our chance to bring awareness and bring our mindfulness into every single moment of our day okay well that sounds ideal really (laughs) we do we do need to function in this world but it would be nice to be able to function with that kind of um clarity that kind of openness Absolutely. And, and, and the lack of attachment where you're not emotionally traumatized by the various events that take place every day, mm-hmm. you know, where you, you see them from a much more objective and even compassionate perspective. Mm-hmm. Well, well, you know, I work with people who are traumatized. That's the, that's the work yes. that I do. And um, yes. yeah, so this is beautiful. Uh, Wonderful. You talk about points of a points on alignment and, um, about sitting up right, which is known as the seven-point meditation posture. What is the purpose mm-hmm. of that seven-point meditation posture? posture? <laughs> well, you know, the body the body is a living organism, and it it has it it moves from the the very physical aspect to very subtle aspects where you know there's winds and energies moving through the body, and if the body's kind of slumped over or lying down then some, you get some blockages, energetically speaking. So when you're sitting up in the seven-point posture, which is that traditional meditation pose you see, um, your, your back is straight and, you know, your, your butt is on the, on the ground. Um, and it allows for the, the grounding energies of the earth to really kind of secure that energy within the body, but it also allows the crown chakra to be receiving the energies of the universe and they move through the body in a very natural, easy way without getting stuck anywhere. And what this does, it allows the mind to settle a little bit more quickly and easily. You don't have thoughts coming in that are um, taking you in and out of meditation because thoughts, thoughts often are a result of blockages. You, you'll notice if you're really um, just feeling stuck that some of the, your thoughts are really front and center. But if you're feeling, you know, liberated and light 
you're more more with your heart awareness rather than mind awareness and so it, it sitting upright is just one element of of the practice that kind of lends itself to clearer thinking what are what other elements lend itself to clearer thinking well training is another element um just learning how to settle the mind uh learning how to observe the mind uh, so that you recognize that you are thinking, that you've just spent five minutes thinking about a conversation you had with somebody at work that day, and then pull yourself back. So the training is another thing. Um, being observant of the breath is another thing. There's there's multiple things you can do to just quiet the mind. Getting yourself in a nice, quiet space is very important too, especially when you're early in your practice. You know, finding that place where you feel safe, you feel comfortable, um, so there's a lot of conscious things that you can do to help you settle into the natural state of mind. So we hear a lot about breath work, and I know that, you know, I use it um, in different, I do different kinds of meditations, and sometimes I use the breath work for my meditation. What is it about breath work that brings us into this state of mind? Well, um, breath is, life it's um it's it's that profound and um you know the the inhale and the exhale is is not only symbolic but it's the reality of us being living organisms on this beautiful cosmic planet that is also a living organism and and breath unites us all um animals breathe fish breathe birds trees breathe the earth breathes the soil itself breathes and we breathe too and breath is something that is so universal that it unites us all and it it literally is the giver of life and i think when we um focus on our breath we are aligning ourselves with the magic and the beauty of simply being alive. And there is nothing more profound and more beautiful than that. I also find that the breath is that one thing that uh, is the bridge into the non-conceptual state. So when you're in the conceptual state, you're, you're, you're settling into meditation and you're using the breath to settle the body and mind. Then when you actually make the movement into the non-conceptual state and you're resting there and you're observing, the breath is still present and it's still a, a, a vibrant and vivid connection into um, the physical body. And so even when the physical body basically begins to, it moves from awareness being in the body to the body being within awareness, the breath is still the present bridge between the two. So the breath is essential. Mm-hmm. Well, that makes sense. Um, what are the the two practices that aid us in the recognition of our minds in their natural state? Um, would that be what we're talking about? The practices of breathing, sitting, um, you know, uh, points of alignment and things like that? Or, um, you know, I'm pulling these things out of your book, so I just want to see if this is something different or if it's something we've been talking about, the two practices that aid us in the recognition of our minds in the natural state. Yeah. I only, know one, I only know of one practice, and that practice is Dzogchen, because <laughs> the, pra- the practice is um, it's, it's somebody pointing it out to you. And the book does this as well. The first chapter of the book is, is kind of a fable. And the questions that are asked 
in that chapter are the very they're called the pointing out questions and they they literally point you the practitioner toward recognizing the mind that we don't pay any attention to then so we we're using breathing to settle the mind and and let that mind reveal itself and but then it takes somebody to actually point it out to you and say look guys this is it and once you recognize it on your own and you begin to become familiar with it then you don't need anyone to point it out to you anymore now you know it and now you now your rest of your practice is just learning to settle into it and become familiar with it mm-hmm. you talk about the eye um looking for the eye the own sense of eye the absence of eye are we talking about ego here yes absolutely and um and it's that same ego that um creates labels it's that same ego that um calls ourselves a certain person or an identity um we're we're so attached to our identity um especially in the western cultures that we create stories about who we are we create stories about who we believe we are and and this is all coming from the place of ego and this i that we refer to it's something so deeply embedded in our culture in not only our culture but also as human beings we you know our whole perspective on the world is from this point of i and it's ego and that's not to say that ego is evil you know ego has a pretty bad rap in our in our you know um in our wellness and wellness being societies um ego serves a purpose being a human form on this planet it protects us from danger it um can um enliven communication and enliven communities but ego when it when our being is ruled by ego that is when ego becomes problematic and when we perceive our world with the i entity within us then this is where we start to begin behaving in nihilistic terms so um i'm sure chris wants to um expand on this but the there's a beautiful chapter of in the book um called i entity and and you speak quite deeply to this mm. yeah i think um the um the ego the the ego is actually the the lifting point you know we come into this world with our egos and this ego drives us in many directions it also drives us towards spirituality and and so ironically it's this movement towards spirituality that will ultimately swallow the ego and hopefully shed it from our our being because in the end we want to move past this i which gets in our way of recognizing who we are uh, as eternal beings and so so it's just a continual process of working with ego working with the i to help us move towards a place where there's no i so was ego supposed to be part of the human condition when we you know when humans were created it you know yeah, if we're think, always uh, trying to get rid if we're always trying to sort of tamp it down or move it aside um you know i wonder why we have it to begin with Well I I think that's because the this challenge that we're faced with is that which actually helps us grow and it's actually that which reunites us with our spiritualism um I do believe um many many thousands of years from now but hopefully sooner that we will become a conscious 
species where everybody is enlightened and we will be living um, in this union with our spirituality that we have since um, been separated from. But the challenges that the ego brings to us are those exact opportunities that allow us to learn and reaffirm and re, um, reconsolidate ourselves with our spiritual path. Yeah, it, it, um, it, is, it is a challenge. I mean, it, it's, I guess it's a part of our growth. Because that's right, you know, I, right, yes. right. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. There was um there was a story that somebody told me. Um, I'm, I'm sure you might have heard it. Um, but um, there was a lady who found um a cocoon, and inside was um a caterpillar. Um, obviously in the metamorphosis process. Um, in in the process of becoming a butterfly, but the lady um was watching this cocoon. And she saw that this butterfly started to emerge and this, you know, the head came out and the first part of the body came out. And she was watching this butterfly come out of the cocoon and the butterfly was struggling, like really pushing with all of its might, pushing and pushing to get out of this cocoon. And she felt sorry for the butterfly. She felt pity for the butterfly so she got a tiny little pair of nail scissors and she started clipping away the cocoon so that the butterfly could be released quicker well the butterfly came out and what happened is that because the butterfly the full body of the butterfly had not been compressed through the tiny opening of the cocoon then all of the liquids and fluids had not been properly dispersed through to the wings of the butterfly so when this butterfly was effectively released too soon from the cocoon, the butterfly had no strength in its wings to fly. And so oh. the butterfly actually never flew and, and died as a result of it. And as a metaphor, it sounds terribly tragic, but, but this is the essence of who we are. Through our pain and through our suffering, we grow in exactly the way that we need to grow. Yes, and I think it's important that we uh, <clears throat> we accept that about each, ourselves and each other because, uh, you know, in the work yes. that I do, I see a lot of people who are trying to um, help other people with their pain, to, to feel so right. sorry for people's pain that they want to take it away from them. And in right. that effect, they don't really help the person at all but they feel as if they are, right? Yes, that is so true. That is so true. And however painful it might be for us as witnesses to, you know, absorb others, observe others going through this pain, but what, what we can do is hand them a tool and show them a tool and show them a skill and say, if you choose to um, train yourself in this skill or if you choose to um, learn how to use this tool, then you can help yourself. And, and that is how we can help each other. But you're right. You're absolutely right. To actually take away the pain from somebody, ultimately it means that they won't fulfill their, their spiritual journey. And we also, yeah. you know, we also need our, our guides and we need our teachers. You know, you, you and your profession, Randy, are helping so many people, I'm sure, to to help as a guide to show them how to work with their pain, mm. but you can't take their pain away from them because then they've learned nothing. 
mm-hmm. but you can guide them through the steps to, so they can awaken into a higher level of being as a result of their pain. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Thank you. You know, there's, um, I think I was talking about this yesterday. I don't remember where or how, but, um, you know, I was saying that this is a, something that a lot of parents feel like they're supposed to do for their children, not, not what we're talking about, but the opposite, where they feel mm-hmm. like they're supposed to um, buffer the pain and the suffering right. of their children. And, absolute, and we are to a degree. We're supposed to protect our children. We're supposed to, you know, buffer them. But we're also supposed to understand that they have their own trajectory of learning to do and that we can't take away all the hurt and the pain in their lives, that we have to allow them to sort of build the muscle that they're going to need to move forward in their life. You know what I'm saying? Um, And I think a lot of parents miss, miss that, miss that aspect of parenting. It's true that parents, they want to step in and take control of the child's lives and, and be front and center of, of, of all the trauma and difficulties of the child. But then on the other end, they don't, they don't speak to the children in very clear terms. So there, there's no, the communication is off and the child is not really understanding what's taking place. I think it's the other way around. You should have utterly clear communication with your child and the child should know that you're there for them to stand up for them. But you should be speaking to your children about what they're experiencing and helping them through language and ideas to move to the highest terrains of all of their their, their entire day. So again, the, the parents need to be great teachers, but they don't need to be the soldiers necessarily out front, you know, clearing the battlefield every step of the way. Mm. Yes, very well, very well put, very well put. Mm. Yeah, it's true. Um, and and the way that I work with my clients is. Um, I like to give them the tools. I mean, I, I can't fix anybody, but I can give them the tools mm. so that they can then go out and be able to um, to handle other situations that come up. Uh, yeah. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's, that's really what we what we want to do in life is we want to give people the tools. Um, how do we go about finding the right teacher for uh, Zogen? Um, there's well, at the beginning of the book, I, I list five of my most influential teachers. I think three of them are still alive and strong, young. Um, Sonia Rinpoche is one, Ming Rinpoche is another, Tenzin Wang Rinpoche is another. But, um, but you know, I'd be happy to guide anybody towards these great teachers. There, and you know, to speak about giving tools, this tradition gives you the very tools you need to experience anything in this life and to do it with from a place where yeah you're still going to you're still going to suffer you're still going to really experience all of it but you're going to have a different perspective on it and you this is the perspective you develop over time through practice and these teachers are great their books are great they're in you know you go sit with them for a weekend they're amazing and they they their teachings begin to reside within the practitioner in such a way where you yourself become that teacher. You you embody the teachings themselves, and it's just fantastic. Wow. How long have you, how, have you been teaching? Do you teach? 
Well, I really like being in the role of the practitioner. I mean, I think I, 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 I'm at a place now where I could probably teach, but I would rather defer over to my teachers or the teachers that are out there. And there's dozens and dozens and dozens of them out there that, you know, anybody could just look up online and, and, and buy their books on Amazon. Um, but, you know, if people, if, the, if it comes up and I need, need to kind of explain, like the book itself is a great teaching, I think. Entering the Mind is a great teaching. It's very clear. You know, a lot of these teachers out there, they're from Tibet or from India and Nepal. And so the metaphors are not necessarily in line with the Western mindset. So my, the purpose of me writing Entering the Mind was to really bring the tradition into the Western mind from, from the place of the English language as a native tongue. And I'm a writer also, so I'm able to employ metaphors that might be fresh, that might resonate deeper. So in that sense, the book is just a totally different angle on the same point and center. So um, the book itself is a great teaching, I think. But if you're looking for a great teacher, I think these guys are out there and they're everywhere. Pain is what usually brings us to learn and grow, to want to, uh, you know, be able to um, achieve these levels of um, consciousness and um, those kind of things. And you said as a child you were just curious, you know, things things didn't make sense to you. But what yes. I'm wondering is, was there an element of pain in your life that brought you to want to develop this, you know, this ability to work on this in a way that, you know, it became your life? Well, tremendous pain. Um, and it was, this, this pain I think I brought in with me from birth. Um, and it was uh, hypersensitive to many things, including a father who was a bit um, reckless with his hands and meaning he was, he, he, he was unafraid to strike. <laughs> and um, that was tr- troublesome. Um, also growing up in Los Angeles in the seventies where, you know, there, it was essentially a battlefield, a racial uh, battlefield of sorts. Um, so everywhere I turned, it felt like my body was, uh, uh, you know, under threat, was imperiled. And I was also internally just like like filled with anxiety and fear, and I was I was unbelievably shy. I couldn't speak in front of a classroom. Um, would never read aloud, and you know because so I was I was really constricted within, and and I was also aware that this was not healthy. That and so uh, that that was part of what drove my search. So I attribute a lot of my all of my growth to the pain and the confusion of my childhood, which lasted, you know, for like 30 years. It, was, it wasn't just in, in childhood. It continued with me into adulthood. So with continued practice and then stumbling onto these great teachings, I recognized a swift movement away from all that into a place of much more clarity and a heart that began to open up with, with love that I hadn't experienced for myself in you know, the entire time I've been here on the planet. And then suddenly it began to arrive because I was becoming more at ease with myself and more loving with myself. Yeah, so pain really does bring us to um, 
to the best versions of ourselves if we, you know, yeah. if, if we recognize it and we and we um, are willing to devote ourselves to the process. Did you try other um, practices before you got to Zogen, or um, how were you led to this? Well, I, um, I did try other practices. Many, like obviously, like martial arts was a good good training practice for the body part of it. Um, but I, I was studying from a young age, like Native American literature, you know, reading Black Elk Speaks is one great piece of literature to understand how the shamanistic elements worked and how, how we as individuals on this planet can connect, connect to the earth to help us grow uh, and the energies of the earth. But it, that, that wasn't taking away my anxiety. That wasn't taking away my fear or shyness, my confusion. And so I, I was continually on hot pursuit of things that could lead me towards these higher level teachings. And I always was hearing about enlightenment and awakening. And so that led me to Buddhism. And even Buddhism didn't quite take me there because Buddhism is still, you know, it still has these structures embedded in it. But at some point, I was started hearing this things about Dzogchen because uh, a lot of the great Buddhist teachers were, are also Dzogchen practitioners, but that was a time when it was quite quiet. So I would get these references to Dzogchen. I was like, what is this Dzogchen? You know, so I got to find this out. And so I, you know, there was a few books at the time and a few teachers, and I just pointed myself in that direction and landed on it and I was like this is it I'm, I'm, I'm taking this all the way <laughs> it resonated with your spirits <laughs> completely and yeah. Rachel what about you what about you how did you come to this and how did you and Chris uh meet and um yeah did you meet, well, um, did you meet through Zojan or was it something else no no we didn't um I mean firstly just um I I didn't have um, such a traumatic childhood as Chris. Um, I was brought up in the English countryside, and I um, I must have been blessed at birth because I literally entered this life um, running wild and free through the English countryside. I had animals. <laughs> I was running barefoot. I was in commune with nature every single day of my life and I spent a lot of time on my own in nature because I just loved it so much I felt safe I would talk to the trees I would talk to the fairies that I would see in the trees and I would um you know take my dogs for hours and hours walking and chatting and my my dog was basically my therapist <laughs> and um uh, so I I was blessed with a beautiful childhood and um so I was, um, you know, but like like many young girls growing up in a little village in the English countryside, I, I dreamed of the city and the big lights. So, you know, when I was in my early 20s, I left England and moved to Europe and my career as a fashion designer moved me around from city to city to country to country. And of course, I was in search of, um, of stimulation, of city life, of human contacts. And, um, but I always had this sense within me that, at one point I would return home and I mean home in the sense of my home within and I knew that one day nature would call me and I knew that one day I would um, I would return to that place of spirit that I knew was there and I'd been 
I'd been blessed with being shown it as a young child. And, and so um, 12 years ago, um, Chris and I were introduced to each other um, by a friend and there was an instant attraction, but the, our first date was actually out in the desert. And Chris and I just had this wonderful camping date out in the desert, and we just sat under the stars, talked and talked and talked. And so not only was I feeling cocooned by my beautiful earth all around me, um, we, we slept on a rock that night. <laughs> um, but we, we just had this beautiful romantic evening, and it was just all born of, of talk and, and the wonders of this world and the mysteries of this world. And, and Chris and I realized that we were kindred spirits. And, and since that day, we've just been sharing um, this, um, this journey together. And we, it, it's just unfolding day by day and becoming more and more enriched. And our spiritual practice has now become very much... Um, the focus of, of our beings and our relationship and everything that we do and share together. So it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful journey we're on. <laughs> How fortunate that you found each other. <laughs> yes, yes. And, and we are so different. And, you know, we came into this world so differently. We had completely different experiences in our early lives. But, but, um, but we were, when we met, we, we felt that we were, coming home to each other. Oh, what a beautiful story. <laughs> beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so as we, um, as we wind down, um, is there anything, you know, I've touched on some different things, but obviously there's a lot more to what, uh, to Zogen and, and what you want us to understand about it. Is there anything else that you would like to, uh, to talk about or share that I haven't touched on? Um, I mean, uh, Rachel and I, at our Riot Material website, we have, it's a great art website, but it's also, it will be moving a little bit more towards mindfulness. But I, I do like this idea of art and mindfulness being kind of in tandem with one another um, to learn to express yourself as an artist or find some way to express yourself that isn't, you know, born of a job necessarily. And that's, of course, a job that you love and this is, the job is your purpose in this world. Um, but if, you know, if, if you're interested in, you know, Rachel and I speak to these teachings very directly. We speak to the key concepts in the book and our, we have a three-part podcast and it's just Rachel and I sitting in our garage and just go, and going back and forth to the, the, into greater depths about what Dzogchen might be. So perhaps maybe your audience wants to hear more about that. Um, yes. If they're interested, they can go to enteringthemind.com and they can have access to that three-part podcast. Um, and then ultimately the book is there also if they're interested. Um, but it's true what Chris is saying. Um, we see that there is, um, there is a strong correlation between um, the act of creating art and the act of meditating. They're both hand-in-hand um, the, the final frontier, as it were, of our, of, of our culture, of our community. Um, you know, an artist um, enters that beautiful state of meditation when they're just allowing the flow of the universe, of the divine expression coming through them. And at the same time, a meditator is opening their creativity within them to, to reach those higher states of meditation. So 
doing what you love and opening up your heart to that flow and expressing yourself in any creative form is is key to just opening yourself to this spiritual journey and and you know we we support the arts and we we support um any practice that anyone chooses to um to embark upon along their journey and and so i think that that's definitely where we're coming from it's wonderful i i i was um i had a guest on recently who was talking she was an artist but she was talking about um i can't trying to find the the paper because I don't remember exactly what she called it, flow drawing or something like that. And Mm. she was saying that we all have um, the artist within us, but that we are all hung up as to what happens when our pencil hits the paper. And so she was saying when we close our eyes and we just put a pencil in our non-dominant hand and just start drawing how um, meditative that is and how when we look at it, um, how profound what we draw is. So uh, I thought that was that's really it. useful. That's mm-hmm. so true. I it's totally so beautiful. Agree. And um, I, I write poetry, and that's exactly how the poetry comes to me. And I remember even when I was um, a young woman, I would deliberately um, put the pencil in my left hand, and the poems would come out of my left hand. I'm right-handed. And um, and I would often switch the pencil and just see what would flow out of each hand. And um, I oh, wow. I actually felt that they would um, they would they would each flow in their own way. And um, one was slightly easier to read than the other. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, but it's a beautiful process. And and you know many people keep journals, and keeping a journal is a great way just to connect to the spirit within you and just. No judgment. Just let the pencil flow, and write out your thoughts. And um, um, my my particular love is is poetry. So mine comes out in the form of poetry. But um, it can be drawing. It can be painting. It could be even painting in the soil, in the sand. And you know, mm. there are so many beautiful ways to allow that divine flow come through us. And 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 like you said, you you look at it afterwards, and and then invite the critical um, and analytical mind to come in and ask yourself then, well, as an, what do you think this means and what do you think this could be pointing towards? And then, then you've got the exciting post-art process. <laughs> <laughs> I found that she calls it stream drawing, which I really like. Stream yeah. drawing. Yeah, it's nice. It's a nice way I to say that. I love that. <clears throat> yes. She teaches oh, us. That sounds well, wonderful. You don't really need you don't really need to teach it because it's something we can all do. But um, but I loved yeah. it. Right. So, right. Beautiful. So, so we are um, we're out of time. But wow, what a great great what a conversation. conversation, Randy. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you, Randy. You're I mean, welcome. that was just so wonderful to talk to you and 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 you know, Chris and I are just so grateful to you and all of the work that you're doing. Your work is so important, and thank you for doing that and and committing yourself to that. That's just wonderful. Thank you, and I look forward to learning more about Zojan, and um, it's inspired me to want to go do some TM today. (laughs) (laughs) I don't do it all the time. Yeah, exactly, exactly. All right. Well, have a wonderful day. Enjoy the sunshine and the beautiful weather, and um, be well. Take care. Thank you so much. Thank you, Randy. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.
So we are out of time today, but if you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email me at loveyourlifeatrandyfine.com. May joy and serenity always be yours. Goodbye. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Visit randyfine.com, R-A-N-D-I-F-I-N-E.com, and be sure to sign up to receive updates on the latest blog posts, events, and upcoming shows. Thank you for listening.